You're listening to Deeply Rooted with Dr. Kratisa, where we encourage you not only to just wash your hair on wash day, but check your soul. Living in America with natural hair is a unique experience. We should be discussing it and giving witness to our own vulnerable and sometimes hilarious stories. Hair stories that encompass much more than just how we style it. Everyone's hair journey is different. Everyone's hair is different. This is a safe space for Black voices. On today's episode, I speak with Monica Henderson, a health justice scholar, student, original contributor to The Crown Act Research, and one of my favorite interviewees of season two. Today, we discuss PWIs and identity development. Please join me in welcoming Monica Henderson to the show. Thank you so much for having me today. I am very honored to be here. I am excited to have this conversation because I do have it uh, in my small circles, but Mm -hmm. to share it with other people is just, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful opportunity. So, and thank you for you for having this platform, which is much needed. Well, you are welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about what a health justice scholar is? You know, I don't even know if there's a formal definition, but in my head, I think about it as I am someone working in higher academia, college research that's interested in, you know, anti-racism and justice work. Um, And it's not it's not always an easy field to be in, but it's wonderful because you get to know the people who are doing the work just like you. And so my specific interests are anything related to, you know, wanting everyone to have optimal life outcomes and thriving um and being extra extra uh attentive to the their lived experiences and the history of oppression and the legacy of oppression and how they are navigating their lives today and so being with my public health background i'm interested in the legacy of uh enslavement and mm-hmm. um you know misogyny and colonization and how that is impacting the well-being of uh, folks today, specifically um, Black individuals and and Black children. And tell me, why is it particularly, I mean, I could guess, but why is it a difficult job to have or to be in? Well, I think in any space that you're in, um, the the spaces have often been headed and run by people who um, have h- held positions of power and in this country that is the white cisgender straight man mm-hmm. um so in academia that is still the case where that standard of practice is overwhelmingly catered to the white cisgendered straight man so being able to bring in anti-racist um you know liberatory narratives into the academic space is um it's it's always been there right we've had scholars from Kimberly Crenshaw to Bell Hooks calling these mm-hmm. things out over time. But um, to keep doing it is important and an honor to be a part of because we are here and, you know, we may know that we may not get the funding or get the um, mm-hmm. press coverage or journal article submissions as we'd like. But 
it is, it takes people to do it for people to keep following us. So mm-hmm. uh, I guess that's, that's what I mean that it's, it's hard, but it's necessary and I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, I understand that. You are also involved with the Crown Act. You are a Crown Act activist as well as a Crown Act researcher. Tell us what your tell us about that role. Yeah, so I first heard about the Crown Act probably when it was first being introduced in California. Um, and that was several years ago now. And I had the opportunity um, last year to help Massachusetts with their Crown Act uh, legislation. Someone reached out for me um, from Boston Children's and Harvard. Um, their team is called Striped, and they were providing written testimony opportunities to explain mm. to their legislator why the Crown Act is important and how it could help citizens in Massachusetts. And even though I'm located in Pittsburgh, I'm like, this is a national global effort and I would love to provide my public health insight into how discrimination and the politics surrounding black hair impacts our health and well-being. So I got to provide written testimony and it was official that the Crown Act passed um, and they were the 18th state, I think, and this just happened a few months ago. So it was a wonderful experience and I also had, um, you know, I maintained those connections because they are doing such important work and I was, uh, I'm very grateful to have been invited back to their team to help on a, an impact evaluation study that they're doing mm-hmm. on the Crown Act and how that law is helping to hopefully create a safer and more empowering and legally just uh, space for people with Afro-textured hair in our country. And, and I should preface this, or I should have prefaced with the Crown Act stands for creating a respectful and open world for natural hair. And um, it covers, it, it, it makes discrimination discrimination based on your hair texture or type um, illegal um, under the US law. And it, it covers workplaces and public schools. And even though this needs to, public and charter schools, and even though this needs to cover other areas and spaces as well, it is a start. So yeah, I'm continuing to pay attention to the legal side because right in this country, the legislation impacts the way we're able to navigate mm-hmm. society. So um, again, this law, people usually ask me, why is this so important? And I'm like, it shouldn't be important, but our hair is not just hair in this country. And unfortunately, Black people have been tasked with eradicating the problems that, that they didn't start. And if we could wear our hair the way we wanted to without any uh, violence or trauma, we would. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not the case. And so the Crown Act is necessary in this day and time to ensure that our children and adults get to operate in spaces with their true authentic selves. The Crown Act is now in 43 states now. So thank you for all of the work that you've done and all the other activists and researchers, um, because that w- without without someone standing up, putting their foot down and saying, we have to have this in legislation. We have given y'all opportunities to make this a regular, like human to human thing that you just don't do. And here we are. So let's get this in legislation. Let's make sure that everyone can be safe and be in a place that 
they can be authentic in and in, in work because it's hard enough being work like being an employee it's hard enough being focused on work you got to worry about your hair and office politics anyway how is um your experience i saw that you uh are at the university of pittsburgh of pittsburgh i saw that you were at the university of pittsburgh can you tell me a little bit about your experience there? I went to school in Millersville. And so, and I lived in Harrisburg for like <gasps> two years. So I'm all familiar with that area. Oh my goodness. Well, a little bit of background on me. I, I grew up in central Pennsylvania. So uh grew up in Chambersburg, small town, but uh, you know, I know Harrisburg and Mechanicsburg very well, but Pittsburgh, um, you know, I wanted to grow up I wanted to go to school in a city. I knew I was, I didn't want to stay in the small towns because it just wasn't a very uh, safe uh, experience for me growing up. And Pittsburgh mm-hmm. has a lot of important work going on. And my parents are from the Bronx and Queens and I wanted to go to New York, but I was like, a mm, little bit too expensive at the moment. So I landed in Pittsburgh and it was one of the best decisions ever because it allowed me to be on my own and rediscover myself along this natural hair journey that we I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about. But I've been there now for for six years. I did undergrad there from 2017 to 2021. And then I did my mm-hmm. master's in public health there from 2021 to 2022. And now I'm currently a staff member there and I work in the Center for Race and Social Problems. So I guess Pittsburgh got a hold of me. I didn't, I always used to say, oh, you know, this is just school. But, you know, I think as students, we also need to recognize that we are sort of settlers or colonizers in a space too when we come into a city. And I didn't want to just leave and not care about the work and the community and the stuff that needed to be done there because Pittsburgh has a lot of racial inequities and has had them and has a very rich and should be transparent history of anti-blackness and it's actually called the apartheid city um mm-hmm. in the black community here because of the blatant um visible blatantly visible living conditions and outcomes between black and white people in pittsburgh it's actually the worst city for black women and i i don't say black women in the sense of black women like me who came in from another area but black women born raised and living in pittsburgh mm. so yeah, I'm very honored to be a part of Pittsburgh and and continue to learn about the work that's being uh, that's driven by black leaders in Pittsburgh and be a part of those circles because it's so necessary. And again, it's helped foster my confidence and ability to pursue a a career in health justice. So, yeah, props out to Pittsburgh, everyone that's doing the work and fighting for the work and you know, liberation, because we see it and we feel it. And uh, we've been here and you've been here. So hopefully, you know, we, and I think that's true of a lot of other cities too, um, that have a lot of racism embedded in it. But again, I'm just honored to be, have landed in Pittsburgh as part of my story. You mentioned Pittsburgh being a part of your hair journey. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so... I was a 18 year old ready to get out of my small majority white Christian town. And in that town, I didn't have a safe space to love my hair, learn to love my hair, wear my hair, how it grew out of my scalp. So as soon as I got to Pittsburgh, I was like, this is a new me on many levels. And I had been wanting for 
about a couple months to do the big chop because I had spent the last four years straightening my hair and I had seen a picture I had looked at pictures and I was tired of seeing the lifelessness of it and the straight pieces and I said it's time to cut it off so I cut it off to my scalp um and I think that was in September of 2017 and I was also so lucky to have a black roommate uh Congolese American took me under her wing and went your hair is beautiful let's learn how to do it together and I did and that's what I did it was the best it was the most liberating experience I don't think I don't think I realized and I don't think a lot of people realize when they choose to go natural or as I like to say return natural um we don't realize how much trauma it was embedded in us from not knowing how to love our hair because you don't realize you you have experienced something until you or I should say you don't realize you have something until you don't have it or you have it so I realized when I started wearing my hair naturally how much trauma I had because I didn't know how to love my hair and then once I started learning how to do it I was like wow I was I was missing this part of me I think that's what I was trying to say I didn't realize a piece of me was missing until I had it until I learned that okay my curly hair is here and it is valid and it is significant and learning the history and it was beautiful so yeah in Pittsburgh was when I I think fully embraced who I was and got to find myself again and like I said I've been here for six years so I I'm still on that journey of loving my hair and appreciating my hair, appreciating my hair and now being in the mind space to help others do that. That is awesome. You mentioned being in New York and then moving to a small town. How did that happen? So I, I did not have the pleasure of growing (laughs) up in New York. That was my parents. Yeah, They were from the Bronx and Queens. However, we would go back all the time and visit. You know, my family was still in New York. Mm-hmm. But being in a small town, yeah, it was hard. It was a lot of um, culture shock and a lot of racism yeah. and experiencing racism and having to balance that, you know, I can't speak out because of my safety and I can't discover myself because there aren't a lot of people here who are who are like me and I am a black biracial woman so I was also navigating the privileges afforded to me with my light skin and my mixed family my mixed race family while also understanding that as much as I wanted things to not be about race they had to be about race um I had to pay attention to how I was perceived how I presented myself um how my family and I were watched in public you know, that I couldn't respond back to the N-word, that I had to visibly look at Confederate flags, that I had to suffer the 2016 election. And mm. oh, the, Lord. and that, I think, you know, that was also one of the turning points for me where I realized how much I was suffering in that town and the mental toll it took on me. Mm-hmm. And I knew I had to get out of there because for someone to come up to me after the election I didn't want to go to school, but yeah. my mom said, we are above this. We have to just keep doing what we're doing. I didn't want to go that day. And for people to come in and I was crying and they were like, what's wrong? 
I, I, I didn't even have the words because I'm like, you will never know why I'm feeling like this because mm-hmm. I have been in this town for so long, learning how to bite my tongue. And I broke down that day and I couldn't bite my tongue anymore. And I was like, you know, it also instilled me with the, the like, it made me realize the real, reality I'm living in is a reality that many other people are living in. Yeah. And I have a, I have a voice and I'm done not using it. So when I got to Pittsburgh, I was also, you know, like, this is my time to do the work I want to do because I had spent so long limiting myself. And so again, it was, uh, you know, my, my young adulthood in twenties is a time for self-discovery. And yeah, there was a lot of, again, there was a lot of just pain, um, and suffering that I didn't realize I was going through until I got out of that town. What ways were you dealing with it? Well, I have a twin. Um, I'm a twin. So her and I are best friends. Are you fraternal or uh, identical? No, we're fraternal. So we're actually um, very different. We have different hair textures, um, different personalities. Um, but we are each other's hype woman and we, I, I don't know if I would have been as mentally okay, as okay as I could have been without her because we had each other's back and we got to talk about things that were frustrating to us or talk through the microaggressions or I should say the microaggressions that we knew at the time, right? Because mm-hmm. not recognizing that they were microaggressions until we got out of that town, realizing, wait, wait a second, hold up. Mm-hmm. People aren't supposed to touch our hair. Wait, what? Um, and we knew that it wasn't. See, the thing is, we were so used to sitting in our uncomfortable, in, in our discomfort mm-hmm. that as now we're still 23-year-olds talking through that discomfort going, hmm, wait a minute, that was problematic. We were also raised and went to a Catholic school until eighth grade. So that was another layer the racism, the homophobia in that, you know, there were rules in our school. You couldn't have colored hair. So that meant we wouldn't been able to wear our hair extensions if we wanted protective styles. Mm -hmm. You couldn't have hair extensions, right? So that other layer of not knowing that was restricting our racial identity at the time. Yeah. Um, But yeah, that's, I think that's how I managed it, talking about it with my sister. I think also like my parents, being part of an interracial marriage, all the trauma that came with that, they didn't really know how to talk about race as directly as they do now. Mm -hmm. We have a younger brother, he's 14. Mm -hmm. And we have these conversations up front and personal now more than we did growing up. Yeah. And I'm not going to ever place blame on my parents because they were operating in a a society Mm -hmm. that was hard for them. And they were also raising two young daughters trying to you know keep us afloat keep themselves afloat financially um but yeah i think it and that just shows having someone to talk to about it means the world and if i didn't have my sister i'm not sure how how it would have played out i mean i don't think i came out of there unscathed i was not okay i am still um i still have to remind myself that you know, sometimes I think it's a form of self-preservation, but I have t- I have a hard time trusting people. Um, I yeah. have a hard time trusting going back to small towns <clears throat> out of my 
because it because I have so much anger from how I was not able to be my authentic self growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to take time to unpack. But um, I, like I said, I, I think, though, that as much as I didn't, I was, I didn't like it there. There were beautiful people that came into my life. Mm-hmm. And I also gained a lot of strength from that. And I learned how to channel that anger and frustration into, again, speaking out mm-hmm. and, and not, and not limiting yourself or having someone else dictate how you're able to show up to a space. Okay. How did your town respond to your hair? How did the community respond to your hair where you were from and versus where you were when you were in in Pittsburgh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't really wear my hair naturally growing up. Um, And I think that was a combination of my parents not knowing how to do our hair and then also me not knowing that I could do my hair any differently because of the media representations. I was an athlete. I played basketball and I ran and the aesthetic was straight hair. All my idols, my basketball, like WNBA and college idols straightened their hair because mm-hmm. like me, they were also seeing that's just how you do it. It was also easier to just have my hair straight. Um, but like I said, the Catholic school dress code probably wouldn't have allowed me to have box braids or twists. Um, the public school I was still internalizing those white Eurocentric beauty standards. And if I did wear my hair naturally, there's a reason why I never wore it naturally again was because every time I wore it down, the microaggressions or the macroaggressions that came with it. Oh, your hair is so big. Oh, your hair is different today. Did you cut your hair? Oh, wait, why is your hair, you know, Mm -hmm. why does your hair smell like that? you know, can I touch your hair, right? And anytime I wore it in a bun, which is usually how my hair was, I would wear it in a bun or wear it pulled back Mm -hmm. and got very, very used to people just coming up and squeezing my pom, like they call it a pom-pom. Oh, your pom-pom's so soft like cotton. And I had seen the video of one of the Little League World Series players. I don't know if you saw that, but he was, his friends were um, Mm -hmm. unstuffing a stuffed animal and shoving the cotton into his hair. And he was standing there, sitting there. And in his face, some people were going, oh, he's just taking it. And I saw his face was exactly how I saw myself in his face. Because mm-hmm. you're surrounded by white friends. And you don't even know how to respond. Yeah. Because you, you're, A, maybe not equipped with the tools to know how to respond. Or for your safety, you don't know how to, you don't want to respond. Or you're just so used to it that you take it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, my, my town was not accommodating the black hair, natural black hair. I would, I, there was one black salon and that's where I would go to get my hair straightened. And I never knew that natural hair care was a thing. I just mm-hmm. didn't. And I'd sit there and all the older women were coming in and getting relaxers. And yeah. so I was like, Oh, that's just what you do. We straighten our hair. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it was a supportive space at all, and and frankly, even even in Pittsburgh, you know, there's it, 
it's it's the it doesn't matter where you go it's the larger problem right the society yeah. fosters these false i'm going to say false cuz usually straight up say, false usually it's it it's called uh like like eurocentric beauty standards but they're false they're colonized and they're false because they it's are. rooted it's rooted in the white man suppressing the beauty of our hair and i could go you know for my 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 work I studied a lot of the history behind mm -hmm. black hair and knowing that the first thing the enslavers did when they got to Africa was shave the head of enslaved people because they knew the power and identity that came with our hair mm -hmm. and they wanted to break break us right and then once we were enslaved in the Americas we had to cover our hair for multiple reasons a working in the hot sun, the damage that came with that, needing to cover it, or B, you know, uh, violence from our enslavers saying your hair is ugly. It's equated to sheep wool, cover it up. Um, and then also that's where our texturism and our colorism started. If you had lighter skin and looser hair texture, you were able to work in the house. And if you didn't, you had to work in the fields. And from that, then if we get into a little bit of the Jim Crow era, mm -hmm. post, uh, post 1865, straight hair was a, a mode of social mobility. Mm -hmm. And if you straightened your hair or covered your hair or wore wigs, you were afforded more life opportunities, employment, or subject mm -hmm. to less violence, right? And that goes all the way yeah. into the 60s and the 70s and how that straight hair narrative um was pushed back at against with the black abolitionist movement and civil rights movement you know you will never see a black activist from the 70s and 60s wearing their hair straight they were in froze they were natural they were big because they're like this is time for radical self-love this is afrocentrism this is our time to reclaim this narrative and um, they didn't do that easily but they did it and i think that's also because of that, now we're in this era of discrimination because after this, the, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, white people saw, oh, wait, they're getting power and love from their hair. We need to find another way to restrict this. So then we got grooming policies put in place. No box braids, no, no twists, no locks, no hair that's distracting, right? And even though those mm -hmm. are, don't say no black hairstyles, they were written with black undertones. And that's where we saw the rise in discrimination of people being fired and not hired because of wearing their hair in Afrocentric styles. So again, it's, I think another thing, when we choose to go natural, it's not a light decision. And when I choose to love my hair and the fact that I love my hair now, it's a journey and it's a journey that comes with accepting, learning and acknowledging all the suffering that our ancestors did before us. So that we are able to wear our hair. And that's why I'm doing the work I'm doing now. Because we still can't wear it how we want. And I mm -hmm. have faced a lot of traumatic experiences with my hair. And, you know, I, I explained the trauma of growing up in a white town. But I also, um, you know, I still took, like, last week, I wasn't recognized by some coworkers. Because I came in with my hair like it is now, out. Mm -hmm. But on the Zoom calls, I had it pulled back in a in a... I had it pulled back. So again, you know, just getting those reminders, I do a little bit of movement forward and then I get hit a little bit with a microaggression and I'm like, mm, 
We got to keep going. We got to keep going. And so, yeah, uh, I, I also had a bad experience in a healthcare setting. Um, is it okay if I talk a little bit about that? Sure. So this experience is what prompted me to, to explore natural hair discrimination mm -hmm. uh, as a public health concern. And what I mean by that is that the politics surrounding our hair, whether that be the trauma from enslavement, whether that be the discrimination of wearing our hair how we want, whether that be, you know, not being able to go into a workplace or school, those experiences impact how our mental health is, our social health, but also our physical health. So I was signing up for a sleep study that had, I had been putting off. And it takes a lot of work for people to book medical appointments. And if a black woman is trying to book a medical appointment and they made that decision, it took a lot to get there because black individuals in this country, you know, face a lot of discrimination. We have a lot of uh, poor and unjust health outcomes related to the system not being accommodated, accommodating or accessible to us. So as a black woman coming into that space, I was like, you know what? I did it. Um, and I was thinking of other people after this experience. There's other black women like me who probably went through this experience. So what happened was I went to a sleep study and I got there and the, I was already nervous because I knew they had to put electrodes on my head. And this was about three years into my natural hair journey. And I was finally, I actually, I just had the conversation the night before this appointment that I was so proud of myself for getting where I was and that my hair was beautiful and that I was learning. I finally felt like I had a grasp of it, um, of like what it liked, what it didn't like. Oh. And so I got to this appointment and I was worried because I knew they were going to be somehow touching my hair because the scalp, the electrodes for the sleep mm -hmm. study had to go to my scalp. And this person, uh, the technician walked in and she, my hair was, was, I guess, pulled up in a bun and she didn't talk to me at first. And then without her consent, she came up to me and started unraveling my bun. And I was like, not okay, e uh not even asking me if I wanted to take it out. She just, approached me like an animal and did it herself right going back to those that legacy legacy of enslavement of how other people took control of wearing our hair how we wanted to wear it so at that moment I was so dehumanized and it of your privacy and your being like she right. invaded your space she didn't even mm -hmm. talk to you like a human being she just no. walked over right and I think that was a combination of you know Actually, I don't even know. It was racism. That was it. I try to explain this to my to other people, and I always just say it was harassment. It was racism. So what happened is she took out my bun, unraveled it, pulled it out. Right. I think most of us know, or if we don't, you don't pull out a hair a hair tie. It the amount of breakage that comes with that is is unrepairable. Right. So in that mm -hmm. moment, ripping that out, that was strike two. I was like, oh. She already touched my hair. Now she ripped out my hair. Mm -hmm. Now I'm done. Like now I am no longer in this space as myself. I'm no longer looking forward to figuring out my health. I am just trying to survive this experience. Right? Yes. You're now on guard mm -hmm. in a medical space where you're supposed to feel made to feel comfortable by medical professionals because you have to put your health in their mm -hmm. hands. Yeah. Yeah. So that was about, this is five minutes into the appointment. 
So then I finally was, I was like, you know what? Don't cry yet. Don't cry yet. Let me, mm. let me speak up. You have a voice, Monica. Use your voice. You know, you're this outspoken, badass woman in all these other spaces, but you're not going to speak up when you're facing racism. Mm. So I did. I said, do you need help? That was my first question. And she said, no, your hair is just very difficult. Strike three. Okay, those, yeah, that is strike three. It's not even, what is it, six minutes in? <laughs> the six minutes in now, I said, you know what, Mon? There's no point. There is no point because she does not see you as a as a human person. And this is a bit, an issue larger than yourself. So I knew what, what, right? We both know what that word different was loaded with, right? What do you, like, it was loaded with your hair is not white hair. It is not straight. And it is not convenient for me to place these electrodes on. And she said, this was, I should say, this was the, really the, the moment that got me. She said, people like you usually come with their hair braided. People like you. People like you. So this, again, this was all six minutes of the appointment. In that moment, I just shut down. And I let her manhandle my handle my hair. She was stretching it, pulling it, trying to get to my scalp. Didn't ask me if I could help her part it. Just did it herself. She was, um, you know, to put the electrodes on the scalp, they use a sort of glue. Mm-hmm. And I was already worried about that because she's putting the glue not on my scalp, but on my hair. Because, again, she didn't know how to part it properly and mm-hmm. didn't ask me. Um, so... By the time my hair was had electrodes on, my head had electrodes on it. It was wrapped up in this like wrap to keep the electrodes on it, and then I was expected to sleep overnight comfortably to get my sleep study results. So I sat in the dark, and I couldn't go to sleep for about an hour. Mm-hmm. And then I finally fell asleep, and I woke up that morning, and I had to do five more sleep study tests, knowing that I'm still in this unsafe space worried about how my hair is going to look when I take these out and recovering from that experience that just happened the night before. And I got home and I finally started crying because I was holding in that whole time. I cried probably the whole day because it wasn't just the fact that I was, I was kind of attacked, but it also attacked my confidence and the hard work I'd been putting in the three years before Mm, that to grow mm -hmm. my hair healthy how it was. My hair was healthy. It was big. And it was the first time I had loved my hair. And then it took one night for someone to ruin it for me. And then we get a call a month later. And the person said, sorry, we don't have your sleep study results. We lost it or they were inconclusive. And they didn't know that because they didn't, they will never know what happened in that room. And I say that, I say that because I filled out a form I filled out a form when I was in that room that night when it happened and I reported I felt harassed and I shouldn't be treated like this and people should know how to deal with all hair textures, especially Afro-textured hair. And that technician pulled the card out of the slot. It was supposed to be anonymous. She pulled it out while I was in the room, read it and said, okay, and who knows where that card went? Oh my goodness. Yeah, so I can't say that I'm surprised at all. Not at all, but the audacity. The that was it. The audacity. My exact response. So 
when they called to say that the sleep study results were lost, I wasn't even going to go and explain what happened. And I, I knew that it was because the electrodes weren't placed on my head properly. And so it took me two years to actually go back and figure out that and go back for a sleep study. And I, again, voiced my concerns and I was upfront about it. This was my experience in the past. And if the Crown Act did cover hospitals and did cover central PA, because it doesn't cover central PA, it's only passed in Pittsburgh and Philly. If the Crown Act covered your area, I would be suing. And and yeah, it was it was sad because for me, I had the privileges and the money to be able to make that appointment and go back. But if another black woman or black person could not, then they would be suffering, still suffering from whatever problems they were suffering from. And that this goes into, this is not just sleep studies. This is any brain or neuroimaging stuff. That field, this whole field of, of, of neurocognition is white dominated and was not created with Afro-textured hair in mind. So the amount of misdiagnoses, the amount of barriers to access to treatment is is unacceptable. And that is part of the the parts of my of my research and the public health concern that comes with that. This is not just a mental or social thing. This is people not being able to access care and get proper care. This is also people we are putting hair products on our head on our head that are that have toxic chemicals that have toxic toxins in them because our hair industry is dominated by non-black people so they don't care what's going in the products we are not told what's going in the products and we are not going to be told because the fda is not required to report the ingredients so it's a bunch of stuff and then on top of that like i said so uh socioeconomic status in this country matters how you are able to get a job how you are able to access an education and if kids are being pushed out of schools or pushed, and we are being pushed out of the workplace for wearing our hair. Again, this is all about our public health and our ability to thrive. That is public health to me, for people to be able to live how they want to live, and achieve optimal health. And if and if anything is getting in the way of that, then it's a public health concern or a public health threat, essentially. And again, our hair, as simple as it should be, and as simple as it is, as it's just follicles growing out of our scalp. Afro-textured hair for Black people in this country is more than hair, and it the 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 context surrounding it and the actions we are subject to surrounding it are threatening our health and our well-being. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I mean, when you were speaking though about the experience of being frozen and then waiting to kind of get home before you mm. released all that emotion. I felt myself going back to some previous experiences where I was in uh, PWIs. Like I'd spent my, my growing up in PWIs and I, me and my husband joke that we have a, a skill of making white people feel comfortable with black people. Like we just, we are the nice quote unquote, the nice black people that mm -hmm. are non-threatening and, and, like the same weird nerdy things that they do that makes them feel comfortable um but we I was a previous partner of mine we were at a barbecue and somebody we were playing cards and a group of people family members were over at a different table and they were drinking and, and carrying on having a good old time 
one of the younger girls, like maybe a teenager came on over to my, to the table and was like, oh my goodness, I love your hair. It's so beautiful and fluffy. And I was like, okay. And then, so she left and I was like, okay, beautiful, fluffy. I'll take it. Just go away. Don't come back. Like (laughs) that was my vibe. (laughs) And girlfriend came on back. And this time she was full on laughing at my hair and then like digging her hands in my hair. And the, the person, the person that I was with at the time was so uncomfortable he like the face was just like oh my goodness like I mean I guess if that's what's happening right now and I could feel myself on the inside be like I have oh my god like I could feel it in my chest the pain of it all like oh my goodness I'm gonna have to tell this poor little white girl get out my hair and she's petting me in the middle Mm -hmm. of this party and I'm looking at my friend like are you okay he's like are you okay (laughs) I'm like I'm not. And we left like maybe 10 minutes later and the friend, the other person that I was there with that um, whose house it was got up and was like, whoa, like when she saw her go reach in, she was like, oh, no, you got to go over there. And she like shoved her and pushed her over there. And she went over, talked to the group and was like, you have to keep her over here. You can't do that. But regardless of how my friend handled it, which she did appropriately, it was that I had to live this experience at all. And that not only I had to live it, but another black person was sitting there watching me and was just just as uncomfortable and just as upset with the whole situation. And so I totally understand what you mean about being being in a place where if you are surviving, sometimes you're holding your tongue in places where you are like, ah, I gotta do the math like the math ain't math and for me and if I say something it just won't turn out well so to survive to keep my job to not go to jail to like be able to thrive I can't I have to contain and sometimes if you spend a lot of time in PWIs or you spend a lot of time in these places you that voice it takes a while for you to learn how to use that voice again Mm -hmm. and it takes a while for you to like stand up and be like, okay, I don't really care if y'all comfortable with the way this is about to come out. I'm not going to use the language that y'all like. Y'all are not going to feel comfortable with me after we are done this, this interaction, but that's okay. Cause I have to live and I can't live like this. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I am, I feel for all of the people who are going to hear these stories and say, I've been through that, but they're also going to hear it and say, I'm not alone. And, you know, we are, we all have these experiences, unfortunately, but we all have our very unique ways of giving back to the community and deciding that we're not going to let this happen again and keep happening again. So, which is why you are in the places that you're in and I'm in the places that I'm in. Um, and which is why I love communing with people like you, because you put your money where your mouth is, you get in, you dig your hands into the community and you say, okay, what we got to do. Mm-hmm. Well, first, Kritisa, thank you for sharing that story because it's not it's it's not it's not easy. Um, and I and I I love what you said about to thrive, we have to contain ourselves. And I think that is literally is it, like you can equate the experience of being of not saying anything when someone's touching our hair to pretty much the epitome of living while black in this country, mm-hmm. because while we are so used to taking things as it is and not having control of anything Mm -hmm. and not knowing how to 
even start with that. And it it takes us having a friend like your friend, and it takes us building community so that we can have people to cover for us when we need, to have people to watch out for us when we need to rest. And I think that's one of the, the things I have to remind myself and anyone who's doing race-related work or oppression-centered work is that, you know, we are out here doing this and at the same time, we also have the right to rest when we need to and be gentle with ourselves when we need to. Um, so yeah, and you are you are so wonderful for creating a space like this because it's not just it's a it's a networking space but it's a healing space so yes I appreciate you very much and I also you know I also have been in predominantly white institutions and spaces my entire life and my job at the moment is a job of a, a dream job for me uh, uh, honestly because I have never been in a space where I am the majority and I'm working with people who look like me and who think like me and I don't need to explain anything because mm-hmm. they just get it <laughs> and oh my goodness yep and and I think sometimes also what's so what's so meaningful to just talking about black hair is because it's also it's a it's a combination of pride but it's also a little bit of mourning mourning yes. Yes. mourning that time mourning those years mourning what you could have been and how your little self could have what you were maybe missing out on and and just it's okay it's okay to be vulnerable and upset about that because it makes you yourself as an adult or however you old you are moving forward as more excited and as more you know steadfast in your commitment to just mm-hmm. finding yourself and I, and I think also with this natural hair movement there's a lot of texturism embedded in it with, you know, what yes. hair type is best hair mm-hmm. or you need to stay natural all the time. Absolutely not, honey. If it's not working for you at the moment, if you need to straighten your hair right now, if it's if, if that's what's going to be best for your mental health, do it mm-hmm. because our hair is not easy and we need to be gentle with one another and supportive of one another because it's going to take this this society, this anti-natural hair this colonized this false this white beauty standard of straight hair being beautiful that was what 400 years in the making it's gonna take 400 years to to essentially heal from that yeah so however whatever journey you're on it's not going to be a straight line it's going to be up and down it's going to be hard you're going to question it and that's okay because that's what a journey is. Like you're you're writing your own path of it. Um, and that's what I had to learn too. Like it was exciting, but I was also frustrated in the beginning. And I still get frustrated. I would tell you 90% of my time is spent in my bonnet and unstyled hair. We are, <laughs> we are not looking like influencers. We are not looking okay. like together. We need to be okay with wearing our, with doing doing with our hair what we want to mm-hmm. because that's what I think the natural hair movement is about yes having, hair choice agency yes agency, bodily autonomy over how we want to exist and present ourselves to the world because that is what has been limited for so long so yeah just getting to know like also the physical like the the science behind our hair 
did you know well actually we all we probably all know but the the biggest lie that we're told is that black hair came first the curl came first the dna behind the behind human hair the mm-hmm. curl the the curl structure and coil came first because it evolved from the scalp of people living in africa to protect the scalp from the sun and created this own little ventilation system and heat protecting system like how mm-hmm. cool is that how cool <laughs> would it be to teach our hair as like a force field as a beautiful protective you know entity and straight hair was a mutation straight mm-hmm. hair is, was a mutation yes. so we're celebrating something that you know i don't want to i don't want to build like we don't want to build primacy right we don't want to build what's dominant right we just want our hair to show up and be as valued as other hair textures and um yeah it's just it's it's just so cool to like relearn like we need to relearn essentially how we need cool to relearn. We need to relearn everything. everything. My, my going joke is like, this is what happens when we let the white people in Texas make the textbooks. <laughs> you can, you have, we have to go down there and get the textbooks from them. We have mm-hmm. to, we have to take the, that contract away from them. We can't, we can't do this mm-hmm. anymore. <laughs> no, it's, you have to have a new curriculum. Yeah. It's, it's also like, you know, when, when, I think we also need to realize, or what I've realized on this natural hair journey is that our, our our hair grew out of our scalp for a reason, and it wasn't meant to be altered as such. And these these beauty, these like narratives, any ideas, any influences about how we should wear our hair, you know, they're still existing in this space that like supports whiteness. So you're still operating in that space, and so I think also on this natural hair journey if something feels uncomfortable or something doesn't look right to you, question why you think it doesn't look right. Who's telling you it doesn't look right, right? Our hair is supposed to be frizzy. It is a, okay, that is, it's going to be a thing. You're not going to get rid of your frizz. What if, instead, if we said my hair is frizzy, why don't we say, oh, look how voluminous it is. It's not going to grow. Don't say, oh, my hair is not long. Say your hair is, it grows out. It grows big. That's what's cool about it. Oh, your hair is, you know, our hair is also, the weakest out of any hair it's very fragile right so we need to get rid of those narratives about oh your hair is is it's rough no our hair is very is very weak and we need to be gentle with it and we need to be and it's that's why it's okay for us to wear bonnets out that's so it's okay for us to wear our hair wrap that's okay it's okay to be gentle with it and our wash days should not be filled with pain right our protective styles should not be painful they're supposed to be protected for a reason. They're just a temporary little cocoon for our curls to, to you know, reprep themselves and yes. get stronger. Rest. So rest, rest. Yes, relax. our hair needs to rest too. <laughs> so again, like I think, yeah. you know, just being natural hair journeys of again going into the history and the science and reinserting ourselves into the narratives, right? Mm-hmm. The narratives of beauty. Um, so yeah, and that's what I've been doing. And that's what I love about it because I learn something new every day and I learn something new about my hair every day. And when my hair's looking good, I go, you're doing good today. And when it's not, I'm like, you know what? You need a day. I need a day too. You know, we need to just be, <laughs> yes. we need to be honest that, and expect 
-hmm. expect that we're going to have days where our hair is not cooperating because it's itself. It's healing too, right? Mm -hmm. If it, if it's, if, if you, if your soul is still healing, the structure of your hair is still healing too. So again, Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I make a note. If we're, if I'm out in public and I see another black person, I'm going to say, I love your hair because how little do we hear that? Right. We hear it. We never hear it. Um, and sometimes it just takes one positive affirmation to, to really, to make your day or affirm that, you know, you're doing an okay job. Right. And, and yeah, that's, that's how change happens. It happens, it happens slowly. You know, we can, we can get caught up in these huge movements and, and, you know, that's why the crown act is nice because it, it shows on legal paper in this country that we got, it got to such a bad point mm-hmm. that we needed to have a law, have words written on paper to protect something that's natural for us. What? So it just, it's going to be part of that legacy that people see in the future that, man, people were fighting and they had been fighting since they got to these lands and they were brought to these lands unjustly, right? They had been yeah. fighting since... 1619. Listen, and when they write my story, it's not going to be critiques that were sitting on the sidelines. I can't. Listen, if they're going to tell the stories of the 60s, we want to hear about the people who was on the street getting hosed Mm -hmm. down. Like, I'm here anyway. We're going to sit at this this lunch counter. But I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This was such a great very very contextualized conversation that I love I love to have these kind of conversations and thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing your your life experiences with us Katisa you're doing the work we appreciate you so much even the people like me who didn't know this existed it's going people are going to know um and you know you are a beautiful natural haired queen who is taking, you know, your. it's not easy to take your experience with, with trauma and, and open it up and run with it with other people. So, you know, all the strength to you and, and thank you so much. And hopefully for those of you listening, you can take one little thing away because I think that's what helps us form community too. You don't need to resonate with everyone. We all have our unique lived experiences. But if you can take one little thing that you can see yourself in and hear yourself in, um, that that's what's important. So yeah be gentle with yourself be easy with yourself thank you so much so some people are going to feel this conversation and some people are definitely not going to feel the conversation i really appreciate monica for being open and honest about what it's like to live in a predominantly white space or uh, or go to predominantly white institutions So why is the fight for natural hair really important? It should not be a fight, but Black people with natural hair have been tasked with eradicating a problem that they did not start. One of the most impactful things about our interviews that I had with Monica was the mention of small towns. There are a lot of great things about small towns, but if you are seen as an outsider, Life in small towns can be quite difficult. Part of the like move up philosophy for some, like the moving on up to the east side, <laughs> if you've ever seen that, um, for people who have not. But part of the move up, move on up philosophy is that you end up spending more time in predominantly white spaces. So things are much different now, but in order for parents to give their children a great opportunity to shine and 
pull the family higher in the next generation, they worked their behinds off to make sure that we got into spaces that we were not supposed to be in. So those are mainly predominantly white spaces in white schools, in the suburbs. So after, you know, integration of schools, then came the suburbs and then came the districting and all of those things. And so putting your child in a predominantly white space meant you were going to get the most opportunities at that in that place. However, you also were going to have to live and thrive and find yourself in predominantly white spaces throughout your life. And so Monica and I share similarities there. But because of their their sacrifices that our parents made, we have the opportunities to have the experience of being other, to have the experience of being discriminated against. And even though blatant racism, discrimination, and violence are not to be accepted under any circumstances or to be like qualified, it is a sacrifice that our parents made to put us in that position. So no, we can't be, we can be a little upset about the experience, but we don't have to be mad at parents for giving us that opportunity because they gave much more and it was much more development happening in your identity than just how you were relating to the predominantly white space that you were in. So Monica said the experience of living in a small town and being forced to hide her hair just gave her a feeling of despair. And oftentimes one can lose themselves in the traumas of hair identity. That is one of those moments where I just let, I had, like if you were in a therapy room, I would probably give you a whole five seconds to like let that sink in. But like oftentimes one can lose themselves in the trauma of hair identity. Everybody wants to fit in. Um, Everybody wants to feel accepted. But after not feeling safe with showing her curls in her small town, Monica is now a seeker of justice for others. And so when the Crown Act came about, she is an original contributor. So she went and shared her story um, uh, with the Crown Act research um, to set it up to, to, to give us the foundation that we have now. Um, and for those who don't know, the Crown Act is a law that prohibits discrimination based on hairstyle and hair texture um, by extending the protection under the Fair Employment Housing Act and also California Education Code. Now, it was originally passed in California, and since then it's been passed in almost 20 states so far. And so we're hoping that we can get a full federal a law in place. However, we're going to take as many steps as we can to get to where we need to be. But it is the first piece of legislation passed at the state level in the United States to prohibit such discrimination. And this kind of law is most needed in these small, predominantly white spaces or white towns or white institutions, because the policies are unacceptable and are discriminatory against people with Afro-textured hair. People might have the greatest of intent on writing a policy, but you can only see what you can see. And if you look at it, everybody has a lens. And if you aren't smart enough and humble enough to say, I might have a lens, and that lens that I have might cause me to 
deduce some things inaccurately or to make, you know, misjudgments or whatever. But you have to first be in a place where you can accept that you do wrong, that you may have done wrong, regardless of how intentional it was. You didn't intend to step on my foot, but somehow I still have a cast. It does not matter your intent. I was still hurt. You still have to apologize. I can let you off easier, like, because it wasn't your intent, but you still have to fully show up, humble, ready to apologize. And for us as Black people to expect the community to show up for us in this way and protect us in this way, we would love that. We would love if we didn't have to eradicate this problem that we didn't solve. However, it is now our task to make sure that we find a way to thrive, not just live and survive, but to thrive in these predominantly white spaces and still have the space to grow in your own personal identity as well as your Black identity. These are the places where discrimination can happen without checks and balances because there's no one there to tell you you have a lens that you need to take off. So I know I said a lot, give this a thought, but do not think too hard. Everyone is doing the best that they can. So be nice to yourself. Change is hard. Thank you for tuning in to Deeply Rooted with Dr. Kratisa. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to share and support the podcast, please subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and share the show with family and friends. And remember, on wash day, don't just wash your hair. Check your soul. This is brought to you by Alive Podcast Network.